Welcome to the Secrets of High Demand Coaches podcast, where I interview some of the best coaches in the business to find their secrets and share them with the world. I'm Scott Ritzheimer, founder and CEO of Scale Architects, and we help founders and leaders find the right coach at the right time so they can achieve the predictable success they deserve. And a huge part of that is helping great coaches do great work that creates enormous demand for their services with way less effort. If you're a high demand coach, I'd absolutely love to share your story and expertise as well. So stick around to the end of the show and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. Let's go. Welcome, welcome once again to the Secrets of the High Demand Coach podcast. And I'm here with yet another high demand coach. And I cannot tell you how excited I've been about this conversation. Uh, It's with Rachel Turner. This is actually the first time we met, but I feel like we're kindred spirits already. Rachel is a founder and an alpha whisperer with more than 20 years of experience as a transformative coach and leadership team and culture consultant. Her superpower is coaching entrepreneurs who need to scale themselves to scale their business and her new book, The Founder's Survival Guide, is the go-to book to help founders to scale and adapt their leadership style as their company grows. Rachel, I know we're going to have a fascinating conversation around this. I I cannot wait to get started, but I'd love to just pause for a second and and start with uh, how you got into coaching in the first place. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing and why you made the leap into coaching. Very nice to meet you and to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Scott. Um, so I think like a lot of people in our world, Scott, we get into it because we've we've struggled and we want to help people overcome the challenges we've overcome. And so I am um, my previous my pre-coaching experience was, was, was as an entrepreneur in the music industry. So I was on a gap year before I was supposed to go to London School of Economics to read history. And I managed to talk my way into a job at a record label. And then I set up a record label before my 19th birthday, then a management company managing DJs and musicians, then a record label and a publishing company and all sorts. So by the time I was 25, I'd established five companies. Wow. Um, But I couldn't scale. So I could start things. But as soon as I had more projects than I could put on the back of a napkin, more people than I could sit around a table. I just didn't know how to do it. I was a very good individual contributor, but I didn't know how to manage and lead. And so I sold the businesses when I was in my mid-20s and was fascinated by why why couldn't I do it? You know, I'm not a thick person. So I went back to university, studied psychology, trained, did a two-year qualification in executive coaching, and then have spent the last 20 years really supporting founders and leaders to avoid the mistakes that I made. Wow. Fascinating. And uh, so I, I want to just jump right into this because I think the concept that you've you've really uncovered is a fascinating one because this is where I spend the uh, probably the majority of my time. Uh, it's, it's probably split. About half of the time is helping people just scale their business. What are the systems, the tactics, the, who do you need on your team? The other part of it, and, and arguably the harder part, you know, to kind of get moving, but the more fulfilling part to succeed in is getting folks to, to grow 
and scale themselves and and helping leaders like yourself back when you've, you know, I'm super successful at starting, but then I keep hitting this wall and I don't know what it is. Uh, that is, that's the, that's the rule. It's not the exception. Right. And, and so uh, you've seen this, you, you, you've recognized, hey, this isn't something that just affects you. And you've started to actually, not even started to, but you've actually codified what this journey looks like. So talk to us a little bit about what it was that was actually holding you back and, and what folks can do about it. So if I can ask that in a slightly more meta level, um, what I've noticed in the last 20 years, and I, I, I could only codify after, I mean, 20,000 hours of coaching, is that... 90 to 99% of the time, most of the challenges, the things that hold founders back, break down into one of three key areas, Mm. um, which are the leadership styles or modes, as I call them in the book, different styles of communication and self-mastery. So at any time, I think you could speak to a founder and you could spot within those three, I, I call them the three legs of the founder survival store. You need all three legs to be strong. You need to be able to communicate, to influence and manage I could only communicate to influence. I could sell, I could sell anything to anyone, but I couldn't communicate to manage people. You need to be able to max, um, operate as a as a leader in three different ways: the sort of entrepreneurial, what I call brave warrior leader, the management sort of operational leadership, or what I call considered architect leadership mode, and then finally that visionary strategic um, leadership mode, the sort of the monarch leadership. Most founders, and this is including me, we're brilliant warriors. We're kind of, you know, solo contributors, goal oriented and make anything happen, you know, go for it. But when it comes to growing some of that considered architect muscle or the more sort of thoughtful, strategic, visionary wise monarch muscle, we're less effective. I, I definitely my my Achilles heel was I couldn't do considered architect. I didn't even know what that was. I couldn't set people up for success. I couldn't uh, manage groups, manage teams. I couldn't, I, I didn't have the patience to, to run team meetings or give good feedback or even help people identify their OKRs and their goals. I just, my, my approach to management was the hire and hope approach, which is sort of the, I'm going to hire you, just let you get on with it, then get really upset when you don't do it. Then I'm going to micromanage you and then eventually I'll fire you. Um, and what I didn't realize, of course, is that I was managing my team the way I wanted to be managed. I don't need direction. I'm a warrior. So I need a vision and a laptop. Yes. But if your team needed what you needed, they'd be running their own business. They wouldn't be working for you. Yeah. And the majority of the time, our teams need clarity on what's expected of them, what success looks like. They need support. They need coaching. They need feedback. They need plans. And I, I didn't know that they needed any of that. Um, and then the final thing is, um, it's no, you, you can be, you can communicate to influence and manage. You can get a tick in that box. You can lead as a warrior, architect, and monarch, tick in that box. But if you don't have self mastery, you know, if you're showing up stressed out, hungover, tired, exhausted, burnt out, full of ego needs, driven, annoyed, frustrated, resentful, none of that's going to work. And you're not going to be the kind of person that people want to work for. So, sort of underpinning all of that is, what I call in the book self-mastery, and I break it down into mind mastery. So really how to how to manage your mind so that the best version of you shows up and not the kind of irritated, frustrated, resentful, yeah. narky version of you. Yep. Is narky an American word as well? No, it's not, it's snarky. It would be our snarky, word. there you go. Our, yeah. And then energy mastery. So you know, the founder journey is a marathon, not a sprint, and you need to be 
match fit for the marathon. So yes. I, I, I failed on all of those. Uh, the only thing I could do was warrior and influence. I couldn't architect. I didn't manage my energy. I didn't manage my mind. I couldn't communicate to manage. All I could do was warrior and sell. Yeah. And I think what's so brilliant about this is that that's what it takes, right? In the beginning, that's what it takes. Like you have to be the brave warrior. You have to be able to communicate to influence. You don't get to the later stages if you don't do that. But then it's at some point, it's not enough, right? And, and so where I feel like a lot of the 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 books that are out there, you know, leadership is influence kind of idea, you know, don't manage, lead. It, it it's it, it's true in a time, it's true in a place, but it doesn't really capture the essence of how that changes and moves over time. And so I'd really like to dial in on these three leadership uh styles, modes, however you'd like to do it, uh, and and kind of put some some flesh on that for folks. So brilliant, uh, I'm sorry, uh the warrior. I've just forgotten the word that you uh Brave. Brave. Brave warrior. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, tell us, uh, what is a brave warrior? What defines them? So first of all, can I just say, I love that you picked up on that. One of my one of my bugbears, or not one of my bugbears, but one of the things I found challenging in my world is that most coaches uh, have spent their lives coaching in the corporate setting where you're, co- where you're coaching people who are just leading. Yeah. Now, the thing is, as a founder, you need to be entrepreneur, manager, operations lead, and you need to be all three, of, often multiple times in a week. Yes. And so you're dealing with, and also you're doing it without any of the support of HR or any of the systems from a big established organization. So I really think founders have a much more challenging leadership journey than, than traditional CEOs in large organizations. Yes. And, and as you said, I don't know how you think about the stages of growth. I think of them as startup, scale up, and scale up for me really happens when like I said before, you've got more projects that you can manage on one spreadsheet and more people than you can sit around one table, then you're in scale up. And then grown up, which is the more traditional sort of, you know, two, three, 400 people plus when you can just be a a traditional leader. Um, So the brave warrior, and the interesting thing, of course, is that what makes you brilliant at, at one stage is actually the weakness of the next stage. So what makes you brilliant as a brave warrior entrepreneur startup stage is the kryptonite of scale up. And so suddenly you're, you're moving to a place where, you know, when you, when you start to start to scale, the things that may have made you brilliant so far are the things that will make you unsuccessful. And that's so hard to get your head yes. around. So I should answer your question. I'll try that. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So you asked, what is a brave warrior? So if you think about a traditional brave warrior, you know, as an archetype, they are brave, fearless, monomaniacal on a goal, absolutely focused, you know, tell a, tell a brave warrior to take the gun turret and they will do or die trying. Yeah. And all of those traits, that those ways of being really lend themselves to that entrepreneurial startup phase. You know, you, your risk, you know, you're okay with risk. Great. Cause otherwise you're not going to leave your safe job. Um, you're fearless and, you know, you're going to pick the phone up a hundred times and have 99 no's and keep picking it up. Um, and you're you're absolutely monomaniacally focused on a goal. You know that's that's you, you almost it's like a rocket. You need that 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 fuel to get it off the ground. Yeah. But then as soon as you get it off the ground and you're starting to build the business, then those things that were so powerful become problematic. 
Yes. And uh, so how does that how does that start showing up? Right. When when is someone sitting there, they've done the brave warrior thing for a while. It's served them really well. What kind of problems do they start bumping into that are, are early warning signs or, or indicators that, hey, there's an adaptation that needs to happen? It's for me, it's normally when people start complaining about their people. My people aren't performing. My, I've hired these smart people. Why aren't they doing what they, they should be doing? Um, uh, it's normally when people when when founders start to complain about their people that I, I would start to suspect that the business has gone into scale up, but they're still warrioring and they need to start architecting. Yeah. Because not always, not always, but a large, a large proportion of the time, um, problems of performance and problems of team are either a lack of effective management or a lack of effective communication. And so that's when that, you know, if if the brave warrior is, is sort of goal oriented and and action orientated and jump in, you know, if you see a problem, hammer it, fix it now, today, do it quick now, that sort of speed and, um, and focus on action. When you suddenly now got a team of people and your job is to align them, make sure they're all pointed in the same direction. They're all clear. They're working well together. They're working to one plan. They're, they're tracking performance. If you start kind of jumping in, changing your mind, flexing, um, you know, promising a client that you'll do it with, you know, gold leaf and tubular bells when yep. your team think they're selling fruit salad, this is when it starts to create absolute chaos. And it's it can be a really tricky moment because you know, founders, they, they like to act fast. They like to act, you know, in on their own and, and encouraging them to think about who do you need to triangulate with? How clear are the team? You know, have you given them the feedback? Is everyone, you know, it it's it sort of, it feels, yeah, it feels uncomfortable for a lot of yeah. founders. I, I call it the reluctant manager, right? Yes, it's, exactly. That it's, it's there, I don't want to do it. And the defining question is what's wrong with these people? Right. It's exactly, exactly. You're talking, what's wrong with these people, you know, and, and uh, as you're saying, you know, the, the, the truth is, yeah, there probably is something that, that, you know, you probably didn't hire all that well, but the bigger yeah. challenge is you. So we've got the brave warrior thing down. We're recognizing that it, it it's not necessarily enough for where we're trying to go. We want to improve. We want to get better. What's the next step? Hi there, this is Scott Retemerin. For over a decade as an entrepreneur, I thought coaching didn't work. I'd had some bad experiences with the wrong coaches and all that left me feeling like I had to figure it all out on my own. And while I wouldn't have admitted it back then, that was scary. It felt isolating and it left me constantly wondering what was around the next corner or when the shoe was going to drop. Then I found two great coaches and with their help and support, I discovered and implemented the predictable success model and my company tripled its profitability in a single year, adding over a million dollars to our bottom line. And now my team of scale architects and I get to enjoy the privilege of helping leaders like you achieve even greater results through our individual coaching and team acceleration programs. If you'd like to scale your business or nonprofit, boost your profits, build a strong leadership team, or even simply become a better leader with less stress, schedule your free 15 minute call with me at www.scalearchitects.com slash 15. That's scalearchitects.com slash one five. Now back to the show. 
So the considered architect, and you're right, because most clients, most founders will be reluctant at this because it doesn't feel very creative. It doesn't feel free. And don't forget the number one, the abiding psychological need of entrepreneurs is a need for freedom. That's why they kicked against their employees and kicked against bosses and wanted to do that their own way. So they've got to start a company because they, they need freedom. And now suddenly you're asking them to manage and management can feel like a real limitation on psychological freedom. I've got to show up to a stand up meeting once a week. Ugh. I've got to align with people. Ugh. I've got to listen to all this nonsense when I already know the answer. Ugh. You know, it's, it's, it's tricky. So um, I call the reluctant manager the considered architect. So if you think about um, while the brave warrior is fighting on the beaches, taking the gun turret, the considered architect is back in the war room. I, I don't know if you ever saw those World War II movies where you'd have the, the war room and the big map and people moving tanks around. That's a little bit like the considered architect. The considered architect is looking at the whole field. And, and in a business, that means the, the systems, the people, the teams. It's looking at, does everyone have what they need in order to be successful? Is everyone clear on the plan? Is everyone going to go at the same time? Are we supporting each other? Um, so that's how I'd think about the considered architect. And like you, most of my clients are reluctant managers. So I introduced this idea of minimally viable management. Mm. I did an analysis over Christmas, and I and and there are about three things I think founders need to be able to do to provide minimally viable management. And one of them, for just to give you an example, is an annual cadence of management meetings, yeah. which um, a considered architect, for example, will have their team strategizing annually, planning quarterly, tracking progress monthly, and huddling weekly. And I did some math. That's about 4% of a founder's time. Now, I, if I spoke, and this is how I sell it to founders, because you have to sell it to founders. If I, if I said to a founder, okay, give me 4% of your time, and you can radically reduce the, the people problems you're facing and Bob in sales complaining about Mary in marketing. You, know, can, you can reduce all of that at really significant amount and radically improve your team's performance. Would you be willing to give 4% of your time even doing something you don't like? Right. Most founders being very goal-oriented will then say yes to management. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's excellent. All right, and okay, so I, I want to... I want to keep us going here because I want to make time to, to get to this this last stage. So uh, we move into this considered architect. You're starting to get the pieces moving, right? We've got the war room figured out. Uh, we don't have to be there fighting every battle, at least, right? We can start moving some people in, in the right places. Organizations usually growing, uh, scaling up. What comes after that? Yeah. So this is when we go into the stage, which is much more like the leadership that you read if you pick up a traditional leadership book. Um, so at the stage where a founder has a really high-performing leadership team of, of probably a group of people who know more about that job than that they do, at that point, they need to elevate out of the weeds so that the architect is quite in the weeds, is in the detail. And if you continue to do that, when you get to two, three, four hundred people, then you start to sort of suffocate the business through micromanagement. And you need to elevate back out to the 10,000 view and what I call this wise monarch. So you think about a wise monarch in history, they really are focused on a couple of key things. They're focused on the, the, the external environment, threats and opportunities. Mm. 
They're, they're focused on alliances and innovations, and they're focused on their nobles, which here would be your leadership team, getting the right nobles in place, getting them working with each other, not infighting, and making sure that that entire group of nobles or leadership team are all pointed in the same direction. Yeah. So, um, and, and there it's much more about, you know, leadership really is about being somebody that people want to follow. That's pure leadership. So brave Brave warrior, brave, brave warrior, look at me. The wise monarch really is all about being a leader that people want to follow. The considered architect is much more being an operational leadership, which creates clarity for everybody. And the brave mm. warrior is being the entrepreneur. That's fantastic. And the reward of getting there, right? The, you know, the, the idea of being able to sit, you know, and 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 see what you're doing over decades, right? As opposed to days, and to create an impact that lasts well beyond your time, that's tough to do. You know, people might tell your story, but they don't necessarily feel the effect of what you do as a brave warrior. But uh, 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 as a, uh, I always forget the word right in front of it. But the wise Sorry. monarch, Let's call it monarch. Uh, yeah, yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, it, it's something that you're doing. That's where legacy really comes into play, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think for a lot of founders, uh, especially later in their time, it, there's actually a, a, a kind of a pool between that freedom that's been driving them all along and that they still want and this desire for legacy and impact long-term. And, and I think you know, this idea of kind of the, the monarch being able to sit back, but doing it intentionally really captures that. Uh, I absolutely love it. I, I adore it. I, I could I could literally spend days and days on this, um, but uh, we're gonna- I just say one other thing. Yes, there's, yes. there's another re- there's another payback. Um, you know, I looked at your, at your CV, you were very successful and you exited. That's not the vast majority of founders. I mean, my company focuses on, on venture-backed founders. And, and in that pot, only one in four founders re- remain as CEO at an IPO. Now, that means that the vast majority have been exited. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around someone, been around a founder who's been exited by their board, but it's actually largely the reason I wrote the book because mm. my dad, that was my dad, and it happened to him twice. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. I was I my heart was broken when I couldn't scale. And I've seen, I've seen my, you know, I saw it with my father. I saw him being exited and it broke his heart. So also being being, like you said, intentional, choose staying in the business for as long as you want to, continuing to be valuable within that and defining your own exit ramp. That's what I want for any founder. I don't think founders should stay with their businesses forever, but I, I would love it if founders got to choose when to exit yeah. intentionally. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. Uh, it's, it's exceedingly wise point. So it leads us well into uh, my next question here. And that is, what's the one thing that you, if we were to kind of boil this down, what's the one thing that you wish everyone listening today knew? We've got lots of founders in the audience, probably the vast majority of our, our audience is founders. So they, they, you've just opened up this entire world for them. What's the one thing that you'd want them to take away from this conversation? It's really hard. I've got two. <laughs> Go for it now. <laughs> okay, can I have two? two? Yeah. The first is, um, while you may need freedom, your team need clarity. And and so many times I see founders think that it would be rude to set direction or to, to clarify expectations or to give feedback because they would hate it if someone tried to do it to them. But your team need clarity. So um, they need clarity much more than you do. 
they chose the pay packet, not the freedom and the autonomy. So give them the freedom, you know, manage, this is it, manage people the way they want to be managed, not the way you would like to be managed. That would be one. And the second is, um, I'm just trying to think of, um, can I say arse? Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Don't be an arse. Now, what I mean by that is something really specific, which is when we are triggered, when our fears are triggered or our needs are are triggered, we all bounce into a set of really unhelpful shadow behaviors. For example, when I um, have my need for approval doesn't get met, for example, unless I'm managing myself, I can turn controlling, people pleasing, a bit vacuous. We've all got shadow behaviors that get triggered when we're afraid or our needs aren't met. And if those are running you, your business will suffer. So spend some time understanding what your you know what triggers fear for you, what triggers need for you, what your shadow behaviors are, what you're like on a bad day, and mm-hmm. do whatever needs to happen so that you don't show up to lead like that. Yeah. And that's where I think you know people probably come to you and to I for coaching and support. So um, manage people the way that they want to be managed and don't be an ass. So good. So good. So uh, I work with lots of of coaches and consultants. I I get a a wonderful opportunity to interview many of them there. And and one of the things that I've found is that we can give our very, very best energy and time and effort and thought to our clients, but oftentimes do it at the expense of sometimes taking our own medicine. So I'd love for you to take off your advisor hat for a moment, your coach hat, put on your CEO hat and and talk to us a little bit about the next stage or phase of growth for you and what challenges do you feel like you're going to have to overcome to get there? Um, I'm very lucky. I, I because I, I I trained coaches for 12 years, and the, and the university I was part of really insisted on very very high levels of personal development and sponsorship and, and supervision. So I, I had it drilled into me for over a decade that I needed to walk my talk. So I, without sounding too much like I'm blowing smoke up my own backside, I do actually walk my talk. Um. So I do do all the things that I talk about with clients. So having said all of that, last year was a big inflection point for us. My business partner and I founded our company, VC Talent Lab, three years ago to really focus on leadership development in venture-backed businesses. And it has been very, very, very successful. And then with the launch of the book towards the end of last year, we're in the rapid scale up. So we're in, we're in the rattling rocket ship phase. So we've just taken on a team of eight practitioners, we're currently updating all of our systems. We are hiring a, a new ops manager. Um, so this is, um, yeah, we started last summer, this sort of rattling rocket ship phase. I, I almost feel like we've got one more hire to do. And then I think we'll be in relatively, because I think with scaling, it's not always frenetic. You have kind of a moment of kind of, okay, this is working. And then, oh, I've got to climb another mountain and then a plateau, then, oh, another mountain. I think we're two thirds of the way up the scale, this particular scale mountain. Mm. Um, the thing that is difficult for me is um, saying no to work uh, because I love my clients. I I love doing the work, but I know that this year I need to coach 30% less. Yeah. So that I can provide the leadership. So, so doing less of the coaching um, wow. is a challenge. Wow. 
So I know some folks are listening and, and this is just like you, you put words to something that they've not been able to express for a very long time. You, you've given them a hope and a point of frustration and they're just, uh, we've got to know more. So how can folks find out more about you, your work and, and even your book? Um, so the book is called The Founders Survival Guide and that's on Amazon um, or founderssurvivalguide.com. My company is called vctalentlab.com. Um, so if you're a founder, particularly a founder of a venture back business, but not all of our clients are, but the vast majority have VCs involved with them in some way or angel investors, then you can have a look at the coaching programs that we do there. And, and there we do what we call founder scale programs. We do team scale programs and we do custom programs for larger organizations. So you can have a look at the work that we do there um, or you can follow me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. We'll put all those links uh, in the show notes for everyone uh, who's interested. Uh, do check it out. That's absolute gold. Uh, I'm so excited to put that in your hands. But uh, Rachel, thank you so much for being here. I mean, just what a pleasure and honor having you on the show. And for everyone listening, your time and attention mean the absolute world to us. I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. And I cannot wait to see you next time. Take care. Scott Ritzheimer here. Thank you so much for listening to the Secrets of High Demand Coaches podcast. If you are a successful coach, consultant, or advisor who's built a strong book of business and would like to be on the program, please visit go.scalearchitects.com. And if you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media and just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials? If you know someone who'd be a great guest, you can tag them on social media to let them know about the show. And make sure you include the hashtag high demand coaching. I love seeing your posts. I love seeing your guest suggestions. Thank you so much. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content to make sure you don't miss any of those episodes. Go ahead and subscribe now. Your thumbs up, your ratings, your reviews, they go a long way to help us promote the show and they mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, you can go to our website, www.scalearchitects.com, or you can follow me or the company on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.